Hey, you've uh, clicked on Barcore Radio Podcast. Thanks for coming on by. We have conversations in neighborhood bars with people doing positive work for their communities. And our program is sponsored by Magic Mind. It's a two-ounce, no-caffeine morning supplement. Now, I'm an old, skeptical New Yorker, and when our sponsor says that Magic Mind will, and I'm quoting here, reduce your stress and anxiety, help you access crystal-clear thinking and memory, and achieve procrastination-crushing focus. I think, right. But I've been trying Magic Mind with my morning onesies and coffee, and must say I feel more awake. And for an old guy who's quite busy, morning brightness is a good, good thing. So give Magic Mind a try. I think you'll like it. Okay, on with today's program. In 1961, Peter Benenson, founder of Amnesty International, wrote that he was sickened by governments imprisoning its citizens for speaking or singing in protest. The work of Amnesty International continues around the world and on the Upper West Side. Today, we're talking with leaders of Amnesty International Group 11. Since the early 1970s, members of Group 11 have helped to free prisoners of conscience in Iran, Chile, China, Indonesia, Libya, Myanmar, Poland, Rhodesia, South Africa, Vietnam, and the former USSR. And currently, AI's Group 11 is working to free Narjis Mohammadi, the 2023 Nobel Peace Prize winner who has fought for women's rights in Iran and is now in an Iranian prison. At Group 11's 48th annual benefit concert held in December, Amnesty International's executive director, Paul O'Brien, called out to the leaders of Iran to free Nargis Mohammadi. I'm thinking about most right now, Nargis Mohammadi, um, who won the Nobel Peace Prize. Um, today, her husband in France received uh, the Nobel Peace Prize on her behalf. Um, but she still is in an Iranian jail for uh, her courage to speak truth to power in that context. And I yearn for the day when she walks free and can rejoin her family. I am Alan Winson, and this afternoon we are at the home of Amnesty International Group 11's coordinator, Harry Schwartz, to learn about the history and goals of this global organization working for human rights. And we'll be talking with the music composers who shared their work at the recent benefit concert, raising funds to support Amnesty International's Upper West Side branch. I am Rebecca McCain, and we are Bar Crawl Radio Podcast. Today, not at a bar, but a few steps from the Carl Schurz Memorial in Morningside Park, an appropriate locale for a conversation about the work of Amnesty International. Carl Schurz was a staunch abolitionist and helped elect Abraham Lincoln. And with that bit of an introduction, here we go.
That last sound was recorded at the Amnesty International Group 11's 48th annual benefit concert. Before we talk about Group 11's leaders, Harry Schwartz and Sue Dicker, we want to introduce Marsha Eckert, who was playing the piano for that performance and organized the concert. Marsha Eckert is a New York-based pianist, teacher, and recording artist. She has appeared at the Mostly Mozart Festival, Merkin, Alice Tully, and Weill Concert Halls. And she is a supporter of piano music by women composers. We will be joined later by another composer, Deborah Kay, and poet Roger Aplon, who performed at the Group 11 concert. Marsha, welcome. Thank you. How did you decide on the composers and music for this concert supporting the work of Amnesty International and our Upper West Side Group 11? This is the eighth year I've been producing these concerts. They've been a great joy. This year, Harry said to me, you know, this is a very auspicious date, uh, the 75th anniversary of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, and because it's the very day, we want a special program. Can you track down music that is all human rights related? And I said, sure. And then I thought, okay, I have a project on my hands, <laughs> because um, in the these concerts have traditionally, for 47 years, been classical, beautiful classical music concerts, originally performed at Manus College on the Upper West Side of Manhattan and played by wonderful artists like Richard Good and his colleagues. Um, but the classical canon doesn't really have music that jumps out as human rights related. And so there are a couple, there was one piece that just jumped right into my head that everybody knows, the Messiaen, which was the end of our program, the quartet for the end of time, um, one of the movements of that very long piece. That piece was composed in a, in a prisoner of war camp. Messiaen was a, a POW in Germany. He was a great, great, great French composer, and um, with the help of a, of a prison guard, actually, who got him paper and pencils, he was able to compose this piece of music and just write for other prisoners that were in the camp. So it was violin, clarinet, cello, and piano, and it was actually premiered in a in the winter in a in the barracks somewhere, but unheated, um, for the prisoners and the guards. That was its premiere on a broken down piano and the other instruments were what they were. That was a brief selection from Quartet for the End of Time by Messien, performed by cellist Arthur Cook and Deborah Gilwood. I noted that most of the program consisted of pieces by women composers. Was that on purpose? Yes, and living composers. There was the Messiaen, and then I thought, okay, I have to find people that are composing now, responding to things that are going on or have been going on in the last, whatever, 10 years. 
I work with a wonderful soprano named Sarah Parr, who is, sings in this program, and she and I are members of a group called New York Women Composers. She, Sarah, has a gigantic repertoire of music of living composers as well as classical repertoire. And so she's one of the people I went to um, and said, Sarah, do you have any ideas? She mentioned Kim Sherman and Nilu. Um, Norbach right away. Kim Sherman, who who said, well, you know, I have, I have this invocation for peace that's written in all these different languages. Well, we recently spoke with uh, Miss Sherman about her inspiration for invocation. I'm gonna. I'll tell you the origin story. Um, I was asked in 2006 to write a piece of music uh, that would be performed at a concert given by the um, the International Women of Peace, which is a United Nations organization. My friend, Alison Charney, who's a wonderful soprano, was the singer. She and I have collaborated a lot. Whenever you write a vocal piece, the question is like, what text? So we talked about it and there was, there's a phrase in the Old Testament uh, make peace on all your lands. We started out in like, like we can do it in English and Hebrew and Arabic. And then I got this idea that um, I live in a neighborhood with a lot of immigrants and a lot of different nationalities. I'm in Washington Heights. It was springtime. And I just went, it was over a course of a week or something, just like within a five or six block area of where I lived. And we're like, go into the deli and ask the lady, you know, she t- she told me the Hindi language or this, you know, just a Spanish guy in the street or my super was from um, Serbia. Um, and I just collected all these languages from people that lived around me. What was it exactly you were collecting? Was it this quote... Make peace in all your lands. Make peace on all your lands, and especially and all the word peace. And I would have them speak it, and I recorded. So because when you're setting text, you have to like set it. I didn't want to like accent the wrong syllable, or you know, I don't speak these languages. So I wanted a recording of someone actually saying them, and then I had them write them down so that I could spell it properly. Um, so I basically all of the languages, there are 14 languages, were told to me in person. And I actually, there's one that wasn't from my neighborhood. <laughs> I was um, a guest uh, in a, at a writing residency at Banff in Canada. And there was this Iranian santur player, amazing guy, who told me the Farsi. But all of the languages were given to me by people who spoke them. So 13 of the 14 came from your neighborhood. Yes. What a tribute to New York City. I know. That's what I love. I mean, I grew up in the Midwest and in a pretty, you know, not very diverse area. When I, when I moved to, I moved to New York and my first apartment was the apartment I'm living in, in Washington Heights. I haven't moved Back when I moved here, you know, everyone, nobody had iPhones. Everybody had newspapers. So you'd be riding down the subway and you look around and everybody's reading the newspaper and maybe two of them are in English. 
<laughs> like, oh, I love this place. I love just, this place. It just makes you feel like you're part of the world. Very good. Very good. Thank you. Thank you, <laughs> okay. Kim. Have a good day. You too. Let's listen to the ending of Invocation, A Call for Peace, by Kim Sherwin, with soprano Sarah Parr, cellist Clara Cho, and Marsha Eckert on the piano. them and she wrote them down so that she could set them and it's very subtle in the piece but she actually gets the flavor of Asian music a little and Middle Eastern music a little and it's pretty amazing this piece. Aunt Marcia could you also tell us about the second piece in the concert an aria for the executive order and about the woman composer. Nilu is an Iranian American composer who I think all of her music is based on human rights issues. She's she's really an activist through music, I think. And you heard that in the in the piece where we chanted at the end, no ban, no wall, America resist, um, which was fabulous for this audience who's so committed, for everyone got involved. Sarah said people don't always chant, but Everyone was, everyone was with us, yeah. so with us. It's an angry little piece about how can you just say Muslims can't come into this country, period, end of sentence. You know, she was... And uh, it's based on the executive order by President, former President Trump. And she uses quotes from Philip Roth's um, novel, Nemesis. All right, so let's hear a selection from an aria for the executive order by Norbash. The United States should not admit those who engage in acts of bigotry or hatred or those who would oppress Americans of any race, gender, or sexual orientation.
We are Bar Crawl Radio Podcast, recording at the home of Harry Schwartz, a leader of Amnesty International Group 11 on the Upper West Side. We will uh, listen to more of the music from the 2023 concert benefiting this amazing organization um, and talk with composer and pianist Deborah Kay and poet Roger Aplon about their contribution to the concert, a piece which is entitled Ukraine 2022. We'll get back to that. Before that, let's meet the leaders of Amnesty International Group 11 here on the Upper West Side and learn about their work to free prisoners of conscience all over the world. And we're so happy to be here, Harry, in your in your beautiful apartment overlooking uh, overlooking the Morning, Morningside, Morningside Park. Park. I mean, we're right on the edge of Morningside Park, looking down. Uh, it really over. is a heights. Yes. Yes. Yeah. You're very lucky living here. Harry Schwartz, let's introduce you. Has been part of the Upper West Side Amnesty International organization for several decades. Early on, Mr. Schwartz was a poverty warrior with President Johnson's War on Poverty, and then had a career as an urban planner and held classes as a professor at Columbia and Pratt and other colleges. He told me a number of colleges that he worked at. And we also have with her uh, Sue Dicker, is also a longtime Amnesty International organizer. Uh, for her day job, Sue is a sociolinguist and CUNY, CUNY English professor at Hostos College. Her 2003 book, Languages in America, argues for language diversity in our country. And welcome both of you to to our, our program here. Amnesty International Group 11, your group, began in the early 1970s, as I understand, and during the height of the Vietnam War was when you got started, your group got started. Now, obviously, you weren't part of it then, and you got involved later. But Sue and Harry, how did you two first get involved in this amazing Group 11? I had been a member of Amnesty International USA for a while, and all I did was write a check and send it in, as I do with uh, a number of organizations. And I got a, me a letter from Group 11 that they were going to hold a big event at Columbia University for people who were interested in joining a local group and doing things together. And I went there, I was impressed, and I joined. Okay, can I ask you, Sue, what, what <coughs> was it that inspired you to be part of Amnesty International? There's a lot of you know, groups that are out there doing peace work. Why Amnesty International? What was it got you started? I think mostly because we were, the members actually do something. I mean, I have an effect mm -hmm. personally. It's not just a question of writing a check to an organization and not really knowing what they did with my check, uh, but knowing somehow they were doing work for uh, Amnesty and for people who are in, uh, imprisoned. But to be a member and to actually do something myself, to send a letter myself, was something that attracted me. Right. Harry, Harry Schwartz, how did you get involved? Well, I, I was very familiar with the founding of Amnesty International, probably in the early 60s by a, a solicitor in London named Peter Berenson. And their first case involved students who were protesting the Salazar regime in Portugal. So maybe 30 years ago, it just seemed to me that allowing people to exercise their rights, political and civil, was extremely important. I guess I looked in the phone book and found the Amnesty office downtown, and they referred me to Group 11, the leader of Group 11, a woman named Judy Sachs. So I called her and we met. They were meeting then in her apartment on West 86th Street. So I started to get involved. It really started from a personal commitment to helping people uh, avoid being 
punished, of course, for the exercise of human rights. Well, certainly when, when uh, this Amnesty International began, it was advocating for the release of prisoners of conscience. Yes. From my reading. It has since expanded to address many other human right problems uh, in our conflicted world. But first, could you tell us, in your own words, what is a prisoner of conscience? It's someone who's been imprisoned because of their beliefs and their, their exercise, trying to exercise them. So, you know, moral beliefs, beliefs in, we have certain, as the UN Declaration says, inalienable rights to uh, freedom of speech and assembly. So it, it's someone who, in a repressive regime, exercises them and is detained, arrested, tried, maybe. All right, but th these are people who haven't done anything. I mean, they've, they've protested peacefully. They, what they've done is exercise what we all consider basic human rights. What is, what, what these governments that put them in jail, why? I mean, they're not well, doing anything violent. No, well, sometimes they are, and amnesty does not recognize people who've been violent. But, yeah, they're organizing, having mass protests, writing newspaper columns. These days it's going online, but they're um, acting under the Universal Declaration. Right, right. Things right. that everyone should enjoy. These are usually, of course, repressive regimes, but it can happen even in democracies when people offend other people or get sued or think or detained. It can happen here, of course, too. Has it happened? Are there prisoners of conscience here in U.S. prisons that you uh, yes, support? Yes, yeah. Um, well, we, um, in this country, uh, amnesty is very strongly against the death penalty. And our activity in this country is mainly, I would say, death penalty, but it also, the no notion of human rights has expanded greatly from political to civil, and and it include it can include people, um, for example, now indigenous Americans who are denied health care on what are called reservations, um, people who are uh, being censured by things like that. So, right, right. yeah, so there there are prisoners of conscience in this country, um, conscientious objectors to war, th uh, Vietnam War, things like right. that. Um, I, I'd like to also ask about your major activities. What does Group 11 actually do? I understand your members write letters to the prisoners of conscience around the world and the governments that hold them. Could you tell us about your activities? I and mean, basically, yeah. what do you do? So we don't actually write to the prisoners. We're not allowed to write to the prisoners. Really? Um, yeah, because they would never get to the prisoners. Um, what we do is we ha we are given information about people who are prisoners of conscience from the larger organization, and we are told who to write to. And, and this we the have, organization's in London, right? Yes, but we, we normally get our information from the American um, arm of Amnesty International. Right. Led by Paul O'Brien. That's right, yeah. whom you met. Uh, we have a cadre of, well, a group of uh, letters, about 12 or so, and we, Every month we choose about, I and mean, we think Harry chooses <laughs> 10 of them. Um, we have the letters themselves. All they need is a, uh, a signature. The letters themselves come from Amnesty. Um, most of the time, although yeah. sometimes some of our members actually write the letters. So when, when we get together once a month for, I think, 10 times a year, 
we have the letters there. We have envelopes, and people read the letters, sign them, fold them, and put them into you know mail the envelopes. Uh, and we have someone who will take the the the, the mailing home, and then. Uh, Seal, it, seal them and actually send them out. At, at one time, didn't the members actually write the letters? That's what I, I read. Very yeah. early on. Yeah. 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 You handwritten letters, which are very effective, but the uh, a lot of this has to do with the number of letters that you get out. And it was kind of limited, so we've, we've evolved um, to pre-prepared letters that people sign. And now our letters are... Su said or on internet so you can just tell someone print it at home here's the letter or we print them and bring them to a meeting so we we've we've increased our output you might say of uh, letters that are sent each month to hundreds yeah. at this point I, I just wanted to get back to this idea of of actually writing to and you can't do that now but maybe I'm a romantic but it seems like it's so much more personal that way in 2013 Group 11 published Two Worlds, One Idea, mm -hmm. which was about that period in which individuals would write to other individuals who were in prison because they spoke out and protested. I wonder if we can talk about Two Worlds, One Idea. Sure, I can talk a little yeah, bit Sue, about please, that. Yeah, Sue, um, A long time ago, it's true, there were fewer people that, that, that were, each group wrote to fewer people. And this was one case that Group 11 got. It was for... Uh, a Ukrainian poet, by the way, who was very pro-nationalist and he was under surveillance uh, by the government uh, and he ended up in a, first in a psychiatric prison and then was uh, eventually sent to Siberia. He was uh, sent to Siberia. Um, the group took up his cause and in particular, one person in the group uh, was very interested in writing to him personally. And they actually formed a very close relationship. They were not able to write about political affairs, and their letters were scrutinized, of course, and um, before they got to and the Who was this lady? I, I don't have her name in front of me. Iris, Iris Akahoshi was born in Czechoslovakia, grew up in Hollywood, California. She and Krasivsky, a Ukrainian poet and dissident, exchanged many dozens of letters while he was held in a Soviet psychiatric prison. What I thought impressive is that uh, she was told, don't write about the important things, just write about what's going on during your What's day. going on in her life, and it was very interesting, and he did the same thing. They're, actually, their letters were in their native language, so they had to be translated before. They, they were translated, and then they went through censorship if they finally got to the other person. So it took a long time for one letter to get to the other person. Sometimes they didn't write one-on-one-on-one-on-one. On one on one on one. Sometimes Iris would get a huge, didn't get letters for a long time, and then she got a bunch of them together. So it wasn't like they were responding immediately to what the other person had said. This must have been enormously meaningful. Yes, it, it was. both of them, but just, yeah. It was also the case that he needed Obviously, he needed things that he didn't have in Siberia. He was interested, for a while, he was interested in photography. He didn't have anything to do there. What do you do in Siberia? So he, he wrote to her and said, do you think your group could send me some things, uh, books on, on photography and photographic equipment? And the group actually got together and sent him uh, the things that he needed. Well, well it's, uh, there's a movie there. <laughs> 
always thought there was. I was actually thinking it would make a great novel, too, because they, they became very close on a spiritual level. He was very Catholic and very uh, spiritual in that sense. She was not interested in organized religion, but she, she was very interested in other types of spirituality, which were in the air in the 70s. And they wrote about that also, their spiritual connectedness. Beautiful. Yeah. Beautiful. Wow. All right. Well, I think it's time to talk with Deborah and Deborah Kay, composer and pianist and poet Roger Aplon. We're going to bring you all into the conversation now. They performed a piece entitled Ukraine 2022 at the Amnesty International Group 11 2023 Benefit Concert. They are zooming in from La Mesa, California. Is Deborah there? We're here. Oh, We're both okay. here. Okay, okay, great, great, <laughs> great. Gramophone described Deborah Kay as an eclectic unfolding of creativity. She has won six global music awards, and her works have premiered at Carnegie Hall's Wild Recital Hall. And Deborah was on a recent BCR pod program podcast with, uh, about women composers. Roger Aplon's poems confront social, political injustices, and conflicts. Roger publishes the poetry magazine, Waymark Voices of the Valley, from his home in Beacon, New York. Deborah, good to see you Deborah, again. Great to see you. Great to see you both, yes. <laughs> so let's talk about the piece you and Roger performed at the Group 11 concert, Ukraine 2022. The score refers to several familiar melodies and to the Ukrainian anthem. Why these musical references? I'm inspired by all of them, and they all seemed appropriate to the situation. The Ukrainian national anthem I first heard on the news sung by a bunch of men who gathered together in a chorus in their burned out village. I'm struck by the spirit of resilience in the people, and I think it comes through in their anthem. Spirit of hope and resilience in spite of it all. Then combining that with these other tunes, really snippets of Box Bach, it Alf, which means sleepers awake. It, it's a hopeful rising. Um, to the occasion. And then, of course, We Shall Overcome, kind of the anthem of the, the African-American experience, which I'm also inspired by their spirit to, we shall overcome someday, you know, to keep going, fight the good fight, and, and keep that um, spirit and of hope and vision of hope that's needed to get through these troubled times. Marsha, why did you decide to choose, or why did you choose to include Ukraine 2022 in this year's 11 benefit concert? Uh, first of all, I love the piece. Uh, that's that's one thing. Um, I, I love Roger's work. I love Deborah's work, and I I, I thought it was incredibly touching, to the point, almost according to some of the audience members, r wrenching. I I heard there were people weeping actually during this which was i mean that partly what we're trying to do is reach people to so that people can understand what's going on elsewhere and i think that it really in that sense packed a punch besides being beautiful um and it, also i was i was thinking so this program was set by labor day um we had had no israel hamas war at that point and the program was really set. But I was looking for different um, subjects. 
and Ukraine was in the air every day. And so it just seemed so timely as well. Roger, your poem includes Ukrainians, children, and women and men. Why form your poem this way? Uh, I've been working with a lot of different issues over the years that involve individuals and their own involvement with the wars, with the uh, separation of children at the border. And this seemed to be appropriate to take on two different voices to express the idea that human beings make up wars, not some abstract vision of uh, bombs dropping, etc. Somebody does this. And these are people that do this. So I wanted to include that in the actual text of the poem. Excellent. Can you read your poem for us? Absolutely. Ukraine 2022. It begins with a question. What is it eviscerates morality, invites the birth of a beast or a taxi driver, plumber, or an accountant once lived a humane life? The first was a young boy, now called unknown number one. I'm here, room 32. I've removed the shrapnel from his chest and legs and arms. And now I insert a breathing tube and crank up the machine to do the work. I've been here 36 hours and I'm headed home to the subway where my mother and sister crouch among their slim necessities, paper to clean ourselves, water, toothbrush, blanket, I'm here too, says my daughter, now six. She has a doll, pink shoes, a Minnie Mouse barrette, and a CD player that's run out of juice. She hopes for a night when she can dream of summer. I'm an anonymous soldier before I was a candy maker. Today, we lifted an old man across the gap to the arms of his shuddering wife of 50 years. They've carried water and a Bible. I've shot men and watched them die. Once our brother Slavs, they've come to war and worse. They've slaughtered our innocents, stacked them like cordwood, left us the vacant stares of women raped by squads of men, left us babies decapitated and strung like gourds from street signs and lampposts. Our killers' corpses lay stiff and broken in the ditches. Once husbands, fathers, sons and lovers like us, just like us. Who can say what it is eviscerates morality, invites the birth of a beast or a taxi driver, plumber 
or an accountant once lived a humane life. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much for reading that. And I want to thank both uh, Roger Aplon and Deborah Kay for joining us um, and for sharing us uh, that, that work you did. Um, okay. Wow. Sue and Harry, when it began, Amnesty International did not deal with the death penalty or other human rights issues as you were talking about before, uh, such things as immigrant rights, ending gun violence climate justice, gender, and racial issues. It does now deal with all that stuff. Has the activism of Group 11 changed along with the focus of Amnesty International USA? The definition of human rights has expanded enormously from what we might call political or civil rights to things like um, health, education, housing, uh, employment, it, and they all rightly belong in the human rights. So we've, uh, I think, uh, gone from prisoners of conscience in the beginning to now part of our work involves uh, health rights for uh, indigenous Americans, Guantanamo. We're doing we're some programming on Guantanamo. Uh, yeah. Try to close Guantanamo. The way, for example, women are treated in the armed forces. Amnesty was active after uh, Katrina in New Orleans, when, as you know, there was um, suppression of some of the protests, uh, killings by the police, differential treatment of people who lost their housing by the government. Yes, this world has given you a lot of work to do uh, <laughs> yeah. that, that we live in now. Could you tell us specifically what, what is it you do besides the sending out the letters to the governments that are repressive? Well, what else do yeah, you do? We, we lobby. Amnesty has a, every year a lobbying day in Washington, lobbying legislators. Um, the, the letters are important. We also sometimes, uh, uh, a lot of the groups do tabling at different mm. events. 
Can you give me um, an example? Tabling at Grand Central Station at times. We did tabling in front of the Museum of the Met. The Met, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, this year's Group 11 Benefit Concert honored Nargis Mohammadi, uh, who recently received the Nobel Peace Prize. Tell us about this woman, what uh, Amnesty International is doing for her. Uh, she um, spends her time in an Iranian prison. Yeah, Nargis has spent, I guess, cumulatively 12 years of her life in prison. She's an attorney, um, is a, a relentless campaigner for human rights. And we have, uh, she was just recently, like in the last two weeks, resentenced to another 18 months in prison for uh, her campaign in prison, meeting with women in prison and informing them of her rights, forming protest groups in prison. So, um, and writing a book about it. And writing a book, yeah, called uh, Black Torture. Uh, you, you two have been in this business uh, of Amnesty International for a while, and I'm just curious, why do you think these governments are so afraid of these people that they have to put them into prison and shut them up and keep them quiet. What what is, what is their power? Um, I think all uh, repressive governments seem to be afraid of people who are, who are standing up to them, and you wonder if they're so powerful. Why are they afraid of one person's voice, one woman's voice? Boy, it seems to me that by putting them in prison, they're making them louder. That's <laughs> what I was just going to say, Alan. Absolutely. Yes. Well, if it weren't for organizations like Amnesty, no one would know about them. One thing that's different now is that years ago, and I think when, when Amnesty was young, there were fewer voices of dissent. And for, for example, in the Soviet Union, the voices of dissent were men who were already very well known. They were poets, they were physicians, they were scientists, and people in the world knew about them. Like Today, Navalny. What's, like Navalny, uh, like Navalny, yeah. yeah. Um, but today, there are so many people who are behind bars, and their voices are not heard. And maybe those governments think if we, if we take all of these people and put them in prison, no one will know about them and no one will stand up for them. In Myanmar, for example, they have a tendency to put large numbers of people behind bars. But then people like, uh, like Amnesty and Human Rights Watch and other organizations are not ignoring them. They're not just leaving them behind bars. Shining a spotlight on them. Yeah. 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 Amnesty's motto is shine a light. And Marsh is showing us the uh, icon symbol of Amnesty International, which is a candle, a lit candle. Yeah, shining the light. Yeah. Mm -hmm. so there you go. I would argue that you could put USA in that group with Myanmar and uh, Russia. Yeah, with the um, of Guantanamo, course. Yeah. Of course, we have ways of, uh, of silencing people. And the I mean, this is all government doing it. These are not private groups. This is the government trying to silence or repress its critics. Right. As I say, we're doing a program in Guantanamo, and um, yeah, we're, we're, we're sorely guilty okay. of that. We are Bar Crawl Radio Podcast, and today we have been talking with people who work for the human rights of others to speak their minds and protest the wrongs in their society. Brave souls who have gone to prison for their beliefs. We thank Harry Schwartz and Sue Dicker and all of the members of Amnesty International's Group 11 for being a moral center of our neighborhood. And uh, we want to thank Marcia Eckert and Deborah Kay and Roger Eplon for joining us and for sharing some of this music from this amazing 
concert that was well attended. Let's complete this conversation about Amnesty International's Upper West Side Group 11 with one more piece by uh, Nelofer Norbash. Marcia, could you tell us a bit about Veiled? Veiled. Um, I loved this whole program. I got to learn about composers I didn't wasn't familiar with before and music I wasn't familiar with before. But Veiled, to me, was the most special piece on the program. It was also the most difficult to produce technologically and... Um, because it includes electronic music. It, in it. Yes, because... Yes, because it, um, it involves electronics and live cello playing. And that in itself wouldn't be an issue. We've all played pieces with live with tape going on. But this involves a, some kind of interaction, live interaction, at the same time, um, which I couldn't even begin to understand when the composer <laughs> tried to explain it to me. But the piece is hauntingly beautiful. It is about the requirement to wear the hijab and veiled, there's our veiled. And it's also about the veiling of women's voices in Iran. Women are not allowed to be professional singers. One of the things you hear in the piece is a chorus of women's voices. And I just find the piece hauntingly beautiful. And Clara Cho, who was new to us and to the piece, recommended by somebody else who had played it but then wasn't able to do the concert, she stepped in and I thought she did a gorgeous job. It's amazing in listening to it, the dialogue between the live and the, and the electronic. They're interacting. They're actually They're interacting, interacting at the moment, and that's what's really tricky to manage. Right. I noticed at the beginning, and we really can't get that in sound, but you can see it in the video, of uh, Cho is, is uh, touching the opening of her cello, and she's rubbing her finger over that opening. I don't know what you call it on the cello. Uh, and there was yeah, a kind of a scratchy F1. sound to it. I guess you noticed that. And what did you take from that? Um, I wasn't sure what to take from that, actually. Mm. Um, somehow, it, it, you could conjure a few different images. It's One, it's, it's like this person is trying to start. I, it, that's one of the things I thought. And it was not totally happening yet and she works her way into it and i just wondered if it had something to do with the struggle of of women who are trying to be heard and they start and nothing's heard yet but they're going to stick with it that sounds like a reason i love that i love that marcia that is wonderful okay we're going to go out now this is bar crow radio here at the home of harry schwartz and with sue dicker and marcia eckert and uh with my lovely partner, Rebecca McKean, and we're going to listen to Veiled, a bit of it anyway. Thank you all. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, yes. It's been a pleasure.
Thanks for listening to uh, Bar Crawl Radio programming. And before we go, just a brief note about our sponsor, Magic Mind. You ready? Okay. I have to say that when Alan and I were contacted by Magic Mind, I, I was skeptical. Sure, of course I had doubts. And, I mean, you know, I can't even pronounce the ingredients that are in it. Aguaganda? Matcha? What is that? So, you know, of course, Alan had to have his doctor check out the ingredients and make sure there was nothing harmful, and there's nothing harmful. So we said, okay, we'll give it a try. I, you know, took it in the morning after my diet soda, and uh, I got to say, it worked. I felt more alert. I I got a lot of work done. It was It was actually kind of... Strange. It actually tasted good, too. It was nice. Yeah, you know, and I guess it's all in the name. Magic. That's what it felt like. You didn't like it? No, no, it's good. It's good. Uh, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not uh, too crazy about, the, um, about uh, the ending. It sounds like a commercial. Um, yeah, it was, it was great. I felt energized and... Um, I just enjoy taking it every day. And I'm sorry, what am I supposed to say? That was sponsored. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and we're being sponsored by Magic Mind, and we're very happy about that. What? Okay, what? I... And thanks to Wade Ripka and the Eastern Blockheads Band for the BCR Bop Bop theme music. Yeah, thanks so much. Thank you.